As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. This time, not just talking information consumption, but literal consumption, considering food as pop. Of course, that then has to include media about food. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, slow roasted and served with Granny Smith apple terrine, Roquefort cheese, cognac, and a leak reduction. I'm Erica Spires, served with a deconstructed aioli, bacon fruit roll-up gelée flights, and for dessert, a make-your-own-wooly-willy face with chocolate bark wand and dehydrated strawberry dust. And I'm Brian Hurst. And to prepare for the show earlier today, I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich over the sink. And it was pretty good. <laughs> I'm T Nguyen, and I'm a failed attempt at European-Asian fusion. <laughs> Welcome, T. <laughs> so you were recommended to us by one of our recent guests, Al Baker, that we are very happy with. You've got your mitts in a lot of pots here. Can you say a little about what your priors as far as food writing and... I was in graduate school at UCLA in philosophy, and then I got slightly distracted because I got a gig writing food for the LA Times. I can tell you that story because it's a very funny story that involves me being very drunk in public. And I ended up being on their ethnic food beat and being a food writer for like five years, and then had to make this incredibly painful choice about whether to continue my academic career or keep being a food writer. When I chose academia, I kind of promised myself that I would come back to writing about weird kinds of food and art, but no longer as a restaurant critic. Even five years of being a restaurant critic, like almost completely destroyed. It was total burnout. There's only so many ways you can call food like delicious and crispy and exciting, and then you just want to die. And I want to do things from a different angle. So now I'm a philosopher. Once they gave me some free head, I started doing what you're not supposed to do, which is philosophy of art, which is the least respected part of philosophy in America. I've done some philosophy of food stuff. And the last few years, I've gone completely into this weird terrain about the philosophy of games. And I just published a book called Games Agency is Art, which is basically me trying to explain why games are a unique and special art form. And that's where my head's been at for a few years. So it's not even philosophy of art. It's philosophy of process art. It's philosophy of things that are not even accepted as art, such as games, such as cooking. Exactly. So I realized I've been obsessed with all these things. I wanted a name for it. And I recently wrote a paper that gives a name for it. And the name is process art. And what process art is, the artist makes a thing. And you're not just supposed to look at the thing and admire the thing. The thing is supposed to bring out movement or choice or action in you. And you're supposed to experience the beauty or the comedy of your own beautiful or shitty movement or choices. So I think games are like this because they're about getting you 
to act and getting you to make interesting choices. I think a lot of things like social tango is about your experience of your own improvisation. And a lot of this came from me thinking about food and the parts of food culture that get ignored. So I got really interested. This whole thing started with this blog post for me I wrote a while back where I was trying to figure out, it seemed so important to me that certain cookbooks made you feel really great as a cook. Like the whole cooking process was elegant. A lot of these cookbooks are written by like longtime home cooks. The parts just fit. Everything smells great. And they're like, you do this. And while you're doing this, like this other process goes off perfectly. And then you cook from these restaurant cookbooks. They're originally made for like 50-person kitchens and they boil it down badly for you. And the cooking process is fucking awful, right? You're like supposed to be doing 10 things at once. It's completely clumsy. It's impossible to do at once. And one of the things I noticed was that when people review cookbooks, they always review how good the finished food is and they never talk about how interesting or elegant or enjoyable the process is. I think that our lives are full of the aesthetic experiences and beautiful experiences of our own action and doing, but mainstream art theory is so obsessed with tying all that down into a stable object, typically that can be sold or transmitted, that we leave out this other stuff. And I think like a lot of the times when people get obsessed with games and trying to talk about games as art, they want to talk about the fixed properties or like movies, like graphics or story, and they leave out the action part and how it sculpts action. And I think a lot of the times when people try to make food into art, they concentrate on the fixed properties that look like traditional art, like how nicely it's stacked or how it's plated. And they leave out the parts that are very processy, like how you cook, what it feels like to cook, what it feels like to cut into a food and maneuver into your mouth. I got really interested in how many fancy restaurants made food that was incredibly beautiful looking, that could be photographed well, but was like shit to eat, like the whole like tower food phenomenon where it like immediately fell apart. And then I would go to like soul food restaurants and the food would look like crap, but everything was like there was enough space, things moved, they stayed in your fork, they had good texture, they like fell apart in the right way. And so I get really interested in like how much Western art theory has excluded the aesthetics of internal processes and tried to push us just to look at these external stable objects. What I'm hearing you say is two different things. And one of them is the aesthetics of the art producer, right? That's the cooker, the person who's doing the cooking. And then the aesthetic process of the consumer. It is the same person sometimes, right? You're a home cook and you're cooking for your family and yourself, but it seems like they're related, but not the same thing. Yeah. There's an aesthetic process part of being an aesthetic producer, but I also think there's an activity in being the consumer in games, the game designer is an artistic producer, and the game player is this weird mix of thing where they're engaging in activity, but they're also consuming an artistic product. And part of the consumption of the artistic product is to perform actions that have been sculpted by the designer in a certain way that are beautiful. And I think that's the thing that is really interesting to me, when the person that's kind of the consumer of an artistic process also has actions. So a cookbook is a thing that's made by a producer for a consumer, and when the consumer consumers, they become a kind of producer themselves. So a lot of these things are really two-stage. A classic example for me is tabletop role-playing games, where the game designers are a kind of producer and the consumer are the players. But when they consume, what they're doing is producing another story, and the designer has made the process of story production aesthetically interesting for the second-stage producers. And that second stage is more a thing now than it was when I was a kid because there was no one watching me play. But now with online games, it really has come to full bloom in that sense. 
there are a lot of art practices we have where there is an aesthetic experience for the producer or the artist, but that's not part of the center of what we look at when we aesthetically criticize it. So I play classical piano, you know, good Asian immigrant kid forced to play classical piano. And one of the things you know if you're a classical piano player is Chopin loves the piano player. When you play Chopin, your like fingers feel amazing. They're like very expressive. Beethoven doesn't give a shit about how you feel as the piano player. But when we're like reviewing Beethoven, we don't talk about that. And we don't talk about the fact that ballet performances sucked for the ballet players and they hated it, right? That's not part of what we look at. But for game playing, we do talk about the fact that the process of playing the game is like wonderful or terrible for the player. This is a long tangent from Food is Pop. Well, but, you know, I think they're related. And a big difference between games and food and you know we can just talk about burger time if we really want to tie this together but with games you have to perform and engage in order to get anywhere where i feel like with food of course getting it from the plate into your mouth has to happen but you can choose to engage in that or you can be completely distracted from it and it's just happening or be watching tv and shoveling and and who cares how the chicken and waffles make it in there it's just you can disengage from that process i'm kind of curious with mark and erica how you see yourselves as food consumers and i was revealing myself for real with the peanut butter and jelly line i i'll answer my own question first cuz that's just how i'm feeling today i guess if i didn't have to eat i would never Like, if that could be something that was just not part of my life, I don't enjoy eating that much. And it's not something I get a lot of pleasure from. But I enjoy the aesthetic discussion and I'm willing to engage, even though if you told me I could go to a restaurant where I was going to get some experience that was going to be transcendent, I'd probably ask for the cash. What about you, Erica? Well, it's interesting because what you're talking about, I think, is a different level of production, right? So like whether or not you're the person who creates the food, like that's its whole experience. But the way you experience the food is a different type of experience. So whether you're taking the time to savor it and understand like how things were made, right? So like it's a different idea. I'm not a person who loves to cook, but I I do enjoy baking. I find it enjoyable from a tactile perspective. I enjoy it from a storytelling perspective. Some of my earliest memories are tied to people teaching me how to knead dough. So even though I don't do it a lot, I always enjoy it when I do it because it gives me a good feeling. That I do enjoy and I enjoy eating it very much and savoring it. As far as food itself goes, unlike you, Brian, I love to think about what somebody did and how it feels and why it works or doesn't. And I don't have the most sophisticated palate. My favorite food is like fried chicken and also Southern barbecue. You know, like that's the kind of stuff that I really love. But I do appreciate it very much from a perspective of the traditions of producing that food and what it means to the people and when they took time to do it, how special that is. I can't really even imagine. I hate the days when I'm not hungry enough to eat something and really care about it. When I think about, oh, what do I want to eat tonight? And I'm like, I guess I'll just use it as fuel. To me, that makes me sad. So quite opposite of how you feel. Probably by comparison to me, your tastes are probably quite refined. I'm not, I, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I think I, I recall eating Brian and I with some of our friends going to a nice, a nice pizza joint and him walking out to take a phone call and being incensed at me that we had just shoveled down without seeming regard for the taste or anything. No, you ate my pizza is what I was mad about. That was like using my gasoline. <laughs> Perhaps a separate issue, but I'm going to read it in context as something that I feel analytically, as I've been dwelling on this topic this week, I can see where it's coming from. And I watched 
pieces of a couple food-related shows that I would completely avoid normally. And yeah, I get the point. I was enjoying myself, but I've been very resistant to the idea of food as art because my approach toward art is very anal retentive. I want to consume the entire canon. I don't want to be left out of anything. And so if you truly democratize the idea and say, like T, that processes become art, And so basically anything that anybody does, if they're deliberate and skilled enough about it, potentially becomes art. Well, there's no way that I can consume even all the types of that. So there's something in me that's naturally resistant to this idea, but I'm I'm trying to get over it through this discussion. I actually have this theory that one of the reasons people have sharply drawn cannons is to create these artificial game-like environments where the world is something that you can actually get your hands around and not this infinite mass. And I actually think this happened in philosophy too, right? People are like, well, if we all read the same like tiny body of books, then we can all talk assuming that we all know it. We can actually, there's some chance of reading it all. But if you let in everything, fuck, you're screwed. You have to admit you can never know everything. By the way, I should say, I have a theory about going to restaurants that my wife says is deeply revealing about me. I call it high-low theory. So it's not absolute, but in most cases, the very best food is the cheapest and most low-end, dirtiest whole dives, or the fanciest high-end sushi, high-end molecular gastronomy. The shit is typically in the middle where you're paying for crap that you can make better at home, but with like fancy, bougie service. And that like makes me want to like pull my teeth. So all my favorite foods are like taco trucks or like fried oysters by the side of the road or the best sushi you can find. I would agree with that. It's a weirdly good guide. I find it like serves really well. So my husband and I are from Southern Missouri, right? So we have a lot of good barbecue. We have a lot of good like Southern style cooking. Just there are a lot of home cooks there that are really, really good. And we didn't even know there was such a thing as... Well, we'd heard of soul food, but we'd never really heard of comfort food. When we moved to New England, everybody said, you guys eat comfort food all the time. And I'm like, what is that? To me, it's just food. It's just delicious food. We moved to Boston and pretty much everything we were getting in the area that we were in was that middle tier, like crap food. Now Boston's much better. Like they have more options in general, but it was very frustrating because I feel the same way. I would, I would go to a barbecue joint in Boston and the plates would be $20 and it would be like this really nice menu. And I'm like, no, I want the menu. That's the tablecloth. And it's got to have some like old sauce on it. And everything should be about 10 bucks. Though what I truly hate now is the Pinterest hipster redo of that aesthetic. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I wanted to ask, so Mark and Brian, how suspicious are you of people that love food? I I sense like a degree of, you people are just pretentious fucks from from that part of the Zoom room. T, you should know that they grew up together. I'm glad that you... And our pre-discussion pointed that out because when we were coming up with our little introductions, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You guys also come up with some pretentious food descriptions of yourselves. And you called me on that, like, oh, we should talk about pretentious with regard to food. Because I really resist that term with regard to the things I'm actually interested in. (laughs) You know, as a, a fan of music, as a musician, I like all sorts of experimental, progressive. They are pretentious in the sense that they are not purposefully humble in the way most musicians are. Most musicians are just like, oh, it's just me expressing my soul. I'm just, you know, I'm a blues player. I just do the blues. The musicians that I like the best are the ones that are like, no, there's already a lot of this stuff in the world. I don't want to think of music just being like sex. Like everybody has sex. Everybody plays music. I want to do something that has a right to exist on the earth. 
is innovative enough, you know, and that's considered pretentious. Whereas when people want to do that with food, why should I dismiss that? I think it's probably my reaction to what you were talking about, T, as these bougie, as you were calling it, that maybe this is not actually so fancy, but I'm suspicious that it's being marketed up so that they can charge me more. I just thought that led to some of the philosophy writing I've done in the political side about echo chambers. But one of the things I noticed was I used to think listening to jazz was really pretentious, right? I was raised on much simpler music and I was like, people that like Coltrane, free jazz, what pretentious fucks. And then one day I was listening to Coltrane and then I got it. And from the inside, it makes perfect sense. And all those people who are calling me now like a pretentious fuck are like, you need to fucking listen to it for a minute, right? So I feel like there's something really interesting that happens where there's definitely a thing that's pretension, and that's doing something not because it's good or you enjoy it or it's soul-fulfilling or for status or show or something like that. But people also use pretension as a weapon to like dismiss things they don't get and pretend like there's nothing there to get. And a lot of the times I find that it's really easy for people to accuse things like food or like perfume as pretentious. And I think what's underlying that is this belief that it couldn't be so complex that you couldn't miss something about it. A lot of times talking to classical musical people about rap, a lot of classical music people dismiss rap because they're like, well, there couldn't be anything there I'm missing. So if you like it, you're just pretentious, right? You're just fronting like a cool person where there's just nothing there. And I think the same thing, like what it is to immediately dismiss, of course, there is a lot of pretentious food culture, but to dismiss any seriousness about food as pretentious just because you're doing that is to presume ahead of time that there could be nothing complex there and nothing requiring experience. My education in food was learning really to drink like Chinese and Japanese delicate teas under the tutelage of like, I just was in LA, I found random people. And it took me like two years to learn to like focus enough to hear these amazing flavors. And I mean, I told you like, look, it took me like two years to learn to understand Coltrane. You'd be like, of course, that shit's complicated. So I think there's this weird presumption against food ahead of time. Well, and it's something that going back to things that everybody does, everyone has the food that they know they like and how much really can there be to this if we all have our own opinions. And, you know, there's the old saw of there's no debate debating matters of taste, but of course there is, or there wouldn't be any podcasts, right? So, I mean, we allow for that. And from my own standpoint, I'm totally willing to accept there are things I haven't discovered and it would be pretentious for me to have a strong opinion about something I haven't explored. And I find it super irritating when people are telling me what my opinion should be. It's like, you know what, I'll develop an opinion when I can make an, an informed choice. So, you know, thank you very much. What's irritating about all fandoms? You have the gatekeepers and you have people who lord information over you and i don't see foodies or wine aficionados or whatever being really all that different from people who are telling me that i just don't get avatar the last airbender it's like yeah i don't but i'm not telling you what you should think about it so please don't tell me what i should think about it yeah we should talk about foodies we're kind of getting the idea is food culture inherently elitist a lot of people are starving so they're not gonna of course you have to be a certain level of wealth to pick and choose and if you want to experience these works of art and not just go to Olive Garden or something, then it's expensive. I certainly don't do it often at all. You know, even before the pandemic, I watched some of this film called Foodies, the Culinary Jet Set from 2014. A lot of it is just showing how these people, how wasteful they are. It's an interesting documentary. I think like many documentaries, I think it's trying to not necessarily make a value judgment and leave that to the viewer. But definitely it's presented, I, I felt like, 
yeah, these people are spending an enormous amount of time, enormous amount of money to make themselves experts flying around and trying every possible thing. And how could this possibly be anything but the most distasteful kind of elitist art form? What is a foodie? Can we just say that first of all? Because I feel like my interpretation of foodie is not an elitist term necessarily. Is somebody who's just like very interested in it, maybe somebody who's a great cook, somebody who understands flavor and texture. Is it specifically people who are gourmands? T, why don't you take this? I'm just guessing. I'll get to that in a second, but I want to ask you, Mark, your like diatribe, which I understand you're giving with a little bit of arm's length, seems to assume that if food is going to be an art form, it has to be expensive. Why well, think that? It's certainly the way that it is presented. The fine arts associated with sort of museum pieces that sell for thousands, if not millions of dollars, right? And you get, so how could it not be the same thing with regard to food, even though obviously it's not that way with regard to music, except insofar as it's expensive to hire a whole orchestra, but it's expensive to hire a whole orchestra to record a cheesy soundtrack too. So money has not been the thing. It's, we had an opera episode. We talked about how there were conscious efforts among the people running opera venues to drive out the hoi polloi, to make this something that only the wealthiest could afford. This is a 100 years ago. Now, everything is desperate for exposure, but it seems, yeah, how could just the law of supply and demand means that the best cooks in the world, assuming perfect information, assuming that the word gets around, by necessity are going to have the most demand on their time, and therefore they can charge the most. And don't forget the cost of driving 500 miles for a $3 taco, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's an expensive enterprise to be a food traveler or a, someone who goes on that journey. I think there's an attitude that seems re- like, I must have the best, and I read about the best in the New York Times, so I have to go there. That is kind of a stupid attitude. But, I mean, if you take the attitude that there are brilliant cooks everywhere and you go looking for them, I mean, I'll say, if I could have any bite of food again in my life, it was under a bridge of a highway in San Diego in the Mexican part of town. It was some old ladies, and they made fresh flour tortillas by hand, and they did fried chili rellenos, but they had it in a pot that had been going 24 hours. So it had been like slow fried for 24 hours. It cost me like four bucks, and they just like wrapped this thing, and like, this shit made me cry. And I, I mean, I lived there. Sometimes I worry that the thing that people hate is not the love of food, but the way that hardcore capitalism has taken over food culture. But that's true everywhere. I mean, here's another thing I, I wonder about. The fact that an art form is elite, that it takes money to get access to it, and it takes money and training to be good at it. That's true of every art in the world. You need money to go see the Van Goghs. You need money to be able to go and follow bands around even. So food has the same structure, but for some reason, people are going to point to food and be like, look, people are spending money there. That's elitist. On the other hand, spending $20 million on a go, that's not elitist. That's just how painting is. And that asymmetry, it seems like there's a weird presumption that pre-excludes food ahead of time. And maybe just this cultural baggage around people who appreciate it, right? I was having a discussion a few days ago about how wouldn't it be fun to go play golf with people who don't know what golf culture is because golf culture is so shitty, it makes the game unenjoyable. Or fishing is very similar. I like fishing, but I hate fishing with people who are fishermen because they are supremely irritating. Not as a rule, but it's a thing. And I think some people may not even know foodies, but they know Niles and Fraser Crane. And that's what they're basing it on, right? So that is a cultural stereotype that is maybe weighing us down. I mean, I feel like sometimes if you're going to condemn people that love food based on like the worst of the wine snobs, and that's like 
condemning music lovers by hanging around on like stereo audiophile forums and pointing to like the worst and most evil people there and be like, that's what it's like to love music. It's like, I also find that it is pretty common to know that a lot of the food that people will pay a lot of money for, especially in French cuisine, is peasant food. It started as peasant food. So there is, even though, yes, Mark, I agree with you that a lot of it can be elitist because it costs so much and because we are excluding certain types of people who cannot experience that. Yet, the way that that food began, the reason it is so delicious and so different and interesting is because people had to be creative with the parts that nobody else wanted. Yes, there's a podcast called Racist Sandwich, that was brought up in one of our articles that I listened to a little bit of and was talking about the history of pork loin and thing. And just one of the highlighted episodes of that was about how the relationship between black culture and Texas barbecue, that blacks were the ones, they were running the homes, you know, that pretty much they developed all this stuff. But yet, if you look at who are the celebrity chefs, the way that the history is now told about that, those original creators have been sort of written out of the story. Exactly the way you're talking about, that some of these delicacies start out as like, you know, ribs were not the choice part. But yet that is, you know, somebody took that and made lemons out of lemonade. <laughs> right. They figure out how to slow cook it and how to make it like just fall right off. Or have you guys ever had uh, burnt ends? Mwah. So yes. good. <laughs> and you don't find them everywhere because like they all run out of them. But like if you can ever get your hands on a burnt end sandwich, do it. Mark, do you want to re-record make lemons out of lemonade? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I just had an idea, so let me try this out on y'all. So let me do an analogy from games. So a lot of the times, one of the things I worry about is games are for playing, and they're one of these opportunities you have for free choice. But when people are really anxious to make games like art, they typically make them like some other nearby art, like movies. And one of the things you see in game culture is when people are trying to make art games, they remove a lot of the choices, they put everything on rails, they remove the choice out and a lot of the unique game-like features out to make it more movie-like. And people will be like, oh, that's very arty because it kind of looks like Spielberg and crap. But it often to me sacrifices like the special thing that games can be. So analogy. I wonder if sometimes the thing to think is like food culture was never meant to be like museum culture or like that's not the best use of it. Food culture is in some ways like much more democratic. One of the things that if you love food you can do is you can learn to prepare stuff on your own in an enjoyable way that's part of your life that's incredibly good. And the idea that there are these geniuses that have this solo thing that you have to fly a really far away to get to is like this weird pushing of food culture to pervert it to make it look like museum culture. But it, I'm not sure it works so well. A lot of the times I think like if the person that flies around the world and has been to all the fanciest restaurants have been recommended by the New York Times, I trust less than the person that is at their home like for 20 years perfected their own BLT and like knows how to make the most perfect BLT. I have a lot more trust in them as a true lover of food. And that might just be that food's different. So I run a music podcast. I talk to these songwriters and they'll often say, well, you know, there's no recipe for writing the, a good song. There literally are recipes for food. So even if a genius inventor, food inventor came up with this, and of course there are lots of techniques involved and complicated ways of cooking things and, oh, season to taste. I don't know how to do that <laughs> or cook until done. I put the fork it, you know, of course there are skills, but still it's, it seems more transferable than most other art forms. I have a theory about recipes. I think recipes are kind of an illusion. So John Thorne, who's my favorite food writer, if you, if you want to read anyone in this space, read John Thorne, who like makes my 
MFK Fisher and John Thorne are the most gorgeous food writers out there. But John Thorne has this essay called Rice and Beans, Itinerary of a Dish. And what he does is he tracks how rice and beans moved through the islands into the south and how it, whenever it hopped islands, it changed a little bit because in one island they'd use pork, in the next island they didn't have any pigs, so they would change to chicken, but then they have to adjust this. And in the end, he says, he has this amazing thing. He says, because it's, what we're talking about is the difference between a recipe and a dish. He says a recipe is a dead thing, a writing down of how a creative cook made something once. A dish is a live thing, an idea of balance that's recreated anew in each instance creatively in response to an ever-changing world of shifting tastes and flavors and opportunities. He is an amazing writer and thinker. And I think one thing you might think is, look, so I think there's a generation of cooks before the current recipe-driven. So like my mom is like this. If you ask my mom for a recipe, she can't give you one, right? She has this incredibly complicated, free-flowing set of like possibilities. And it's because she has this sense of how it could be. And she remakes it because this today is the pineapple is a little different. Today is the catfish is a little stankier. So she has to shift it around. And I think when you tie things down in a recipe, recipes become unresponsive to these shifts. And I think there's an artificiality there. Like recipes are a kind of industrialized, standardized attempt to make something replicable out of an act that isn't that replicable. I mean, I think for the jazz musician here, the analogy is recipes are like, imagine you heard a jazz performance you really liked and your response for it was to learn to completely recreate it note for note. And I think a jazz player would be like, that's not jazz. You might think that's a real cook's response to recipes. Like maybe they're a way to learn things just like music notation is a way to learn the beginning of a tune. But like the thing you want is something else. And that's kind of a deep skill that's not transferable. We have to mention how popular television shows about food are and how, I mean, they've been around for a long time, but not in the way they are now. We first had more so like recipe shows. How do you make this? And then we started getting more reality competition shows, right? And then we had also the Bourdain type shows. Now let's talk about the story behind the food and what is the culture that is behind this and, and how does it relate to everything else around it? One thing that's, I think, super fascinating about watching TV shows about food is that it can be so enjoyable when you can't taste or smell any of it. Why are food shows so popular? We have a couple articles talking about this, like the Hollywood reporters saying, when you're looking at categories of programming that people respond to globally, food and cooking shows are on the top of that list. Why is it that something like food can be so applicable when you're just looking at it? I don't know if any of you ever watched the program Next Food Network Star, but it was this meta yes. competition, right, to become a host on their one of their programs. And, and they really reveal a lot about their philosophy as a network and what they're trying to do. And, and part of it has to do with what you were talking about, with the storytelling. And people, they really don't want to get a recipe from watching a Food Network show. They want an experience. They want the person who's the host to talk about their Nana or their whoever who made this for them at such a time in their life so they have a personal connection to it. But they also do talk about the food saying, you have too many ingredients. This is the Food Network. You have to have seven ingredients or less and X number of steps or less, or it's going to, people won't want to make it that sort of thing. So what we are getting as TV consumers is packaged, I think, in a way to, to appeal to us. And if we mm. were to be really just watching someone cook or, or see what you know goes into making this, I think it would look a little bit different maybe. I think there's a lot of TV artistry that goes into this. The other thing I'll mention is I watched a little bit of the show Nailed It, which... <laughs> yes. It's not the inability to make 
difficult recipes because they're not given enough time and they're not real cooks. But I think it's highlighting the fact that it's hard to make this stuff and it's okay to be bad at it. And I've already mentioned, I'm not that into eating. I do cook and I don't do it very well. I have a secret extra step of every food I make, which is to leave it in another 15 minutes to be sure. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) That might just be the, uh, you know, what my grandma always did, the Jewish cook, just to make sure it's really done. That's why I don't bake because everything is terrible. Maybe that's why I don't enjoy eating that much either. But I'll still watch food programs apart because I don't have to eat it. I can just enjoy the visual aspects of it and the competition and the stories. And I guess I would want to distinguish between food porn. So there's that feature film Chef, that is John Favreau, that really did sell me. And, and I often talk about how music documentaries are really good for, music biopics are really good for showing you if you really, I don't even know who Coltrane is or whatever, but seeing something that's about Coltrane and his life and his passions and gives you pieces of the music in bite size, you know, that's a really great way. I felt like this film did that for certain kinds of tacos and things. And could kind of get into that world of, I'm not sure, what are we just reacting to the appearance of it and the squishiness of it? What is, uh, I think, T, you you mentioned food porn in our potential categories here. Can you expound on that a little? First, I should say, I actually can't watch food TV, and I find it, most of it, distracting in the same way that a lot of listless professional porn is. It's like full of people who are professionally told, like, pay to go, mmm, and they spend their entire (laughs) life going, mmm, it's so good. I just can't (laughs) fucking believe it anymore. Sorry, I just revealed too much about my whole life. But here I think I'm with Mark. I have a little bit of a worry, and a little bit of the worry is that a lot of food culture is being transmitted visually, and that's doing something really weird to food culture. So I was just talking to my friends. I, I love this YouTube series, Every Frame of Painting, which is teaches you how video editing works. And it works really well on YouTube because it's about film editing. And music documentaries in film work really well because you can actually play the music. But I'm a little worried by, like, I feel this more on Instagram, especially. Like, there are all these restaurants that are super famous because of Instagram or because they're featured on a TV show. And when you go... It's visually really appealing and it tastes like crap. There's some donut shops where I can tell that like the way they've made the donut pop, the donut has been engineered to pop on an iPhone photo and the way they've done it is by adding certain waxes to sustain the colors and the texture is like horrible and it tastes like death. But there are lines out the door because it's big on Instagram because it Instagrams well. And so I'm kind of worried that like the dominance of visual culture is like dragging food culture towards something that it isn't perfectly suited for. But we should talk about porn. If you want to know anything about me that will excite you, me and my co-author, Becca Williams, are the only professional philosophers who've written a paper on food porn. So we have like a philosophical analysis and definition of food porn, which I will give you. Yes. Okay, here we go. This is what you, this is what you wanted, right? This is, I'm sure this is why. Yeah, give me the music. Give me the music. Okay, so this is a paper written by me and Becca Williams that started as a late night drunk Facebook joke conversation. Halfway through it, we were like, holy shit, this is really good. We should write this up. So we were like, what's the definition of porn? Not sex porn, but like food porn, real estate porn, closet porn, you know, like, so my wife loves this site that she calls organization porn, which is the site's called, used to be a Tumblr site called Things Organized Neatly. And if you go to it, you can just see like rows of books or cans or pencils organized. And she just like looks at it and like zens out. And so we were like, what's the definition of porn in this sense? So Michael Ray has this old paper about sexual pornography where he says that what pornography is, is looking at basically representations of sex for immediate gratification without intimacy or connection. We were like, hey, I think we can generalize it. So our definition of X-porn is, for any X, X-porn is 
representations of X used for immediate gratification while avoiding the costs and consequences of entanglement with the real thing. Ooh. So food porn is using pictures of food for immediate gratification without having to prepare it or deal with the nutrition or go out and pay for it. Real estate porn is looking at pictures of fancy buildings without having to care for it or pay for it, right? Or like poverty porn is looking at pictures of poor people to like feel, have moral feelings without actually having to get off your ass and do something about it. P.S. The end of the paper was something like, well, if this is true, then we should be able to see new kinds of porn. And here's one, moral outrage porn, which is representations of moral outrage used for immediate gratification without actually in moral engagement, which I think is like two-thirds of Twitter. But anyway, what you care about is the food porn part. Again, I can't watch a lot of food TV, but what I see like divides for me between stuff that seems like good food education and stuff that seems like food porn. And the stuff that's good food education is stuff that might actually inspire someone to either cook for themselves or learn to cook or go out and taste something. And the food porn is something that just ends there. You look at the thing, it like makes you feel kind of cool and you're done. It's kind of a parallel worry. Like some people have the worry about sexual pornography that certain uses of it will make people just like stop looking for real relationships. And my worry about food porn is there's certain stuff that's designed to be visually tantalizing, but then not incentivize or inspire people to go out and like have actual food experiences. So I brought that up as just a subsection of like, how much is food TV? How much of that is food porn? Which I would think it's a pretty small, you can't fill a half hour show simply by showing burgers being flipped or whatever the thing that is going to make your mouth water. There, you know, it seems it's more narrative than that. It's like most other reality TV that you're kind of seeing ordinary people or maybe there's some celebrities in there or maybe you get to know a cool celebrity chef and they're sharing their words of wisdom and you get to hear, like I think Erica was saying about being served this when you were a, a child, you're getting to learn about cultures, you're getting to learn about, so it's still narrative. It's the same explanation of why any other kind of reality TV is successful. A lot of sexual porn is narrative too, but that's still porn. I find your definition really good, though I feel like it's almost so extensible that it starts to kind of lose meaning at the edges. And some of the cooking shows, it feels more like specifically, I guess, by your definition, it's actual cooking porn. You're watching someone who is better at cooking than you'll ever be, messing up a kitchen that you don't have to clean up in, and actually they don't either, right? They have assistance. And by the time it's done, they've produced something that, that you can't do. So it's a fantasy of cooking something in a way that you'll never be able to cook it, right? You're removed from it, right? It's at a distance and all these things. And I think the problem is I, I, I would start to feel like every damn show I'm watching might start right. falling into, right? That's where I'm saying it becomes so extensible. So I do think that this kind of porn you'll see a lot because I think large-scale media has a reason to generate these kinds of relationships. So I think we're seeing it more and more. The account of porn is not centered on the thing, but it's centered on your relationship with the thing. In one of the best parts of this Michael Ray paper about sexual pornography, he points out that if two lovers are exchanging nude pictures for erotic purposes to build a relationship. That's not porn, but someone else could use the same pictures as porn if they got their hands on them. And so it's something similar. I think some people can have a porny attitude towards food TV and some people can't. <laughs> but the, the key of the definition is, um, thank, thank you for laughing. A porny attitude is just, <laughs> it's a good phrase. I'm glad my career has gotten to the point where I can say this shit and be like, trust me, I'm a technical expert on this. This is a technical <laughs> phrase. I have a definition. You can cite. Okay. The key is that it's used for immediate gratification while being disengaged from the normal costs and consequences. The analogy, I think, with sexual porn is useful. So sexual pornography, if you use it 
and your long-term relationship with it pushes you away from intimacy in relationships, that's a high porn use. But if, if like a couple uses porn to like get ideas for what to do, that's not in this sense using it as porn. It's something else, right? So I think there's a suggestion that like, look, if you watch a cooking show and you like are like, okay, I'm going to cook that, right? And you cook it and the cooking show helps your engagement with the cooking and teaches you something, you're not using it as porn. But you sit there and like, you're like, Mmm, that like makes my salivary glands go. I feel yum. And then that's the end of your relationship with that food. Then that is a use as porn. So, I mean, I think it's everywhere, but it's not empty. There, there are different kinds of relationship with it. I do, however, think that a lot of entertainment counts as like romance porn or heroism porn. Brian, you were that you seem to raise. Say more about why you think this would make everything porn. Is it because of this? hero or romance porn that he's referring to? Just this idea that if you're not going to engage with something beyond being titillated in some way, I mean, that's just so much of how I consume entertainment in general. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch an Avengers movie and I'm going to get my jollies from whatever story they tell me or that's it. I haven't done any meaningful steps towards engaging beyond just taking something in and having my serotonin levels go up and now I'm done. I think you're using Marvel <laughs> movies as heroism porn. I will truthfully can... waltz off this hill without... <laughs> I guess one thing that is an interference for me in appreciating food culture, appreciating something as food porn, is ambivalence about meat. And this will really have to be a separate episode. But just so much of what what you were talking about, T, is, is the most expensive or the cheapest and most plentiful. So much of that's involves meat of some sort, whether it's slow roasting something or getting things from strange animals that you would not <laughs> and that only, you know, adventurous food people will investigate. But I still eat meat, not so much red meat, but I don't really feel good about it. And ultimately, I'd rather have it looking like bologna. I'd rather have processed chicken breast that I don't have to picture on an animal and things. And so much of what makes something, I remember going to a really nice New York restaurant and getting the shrimps with the heads on them. Like anything that reveals it of its animal nature actually makes it worse for me. And that's part of the aesthetic of what makes something beautiful is maybe it kind of ruins half of the potential experiences in this area for me. And I think you can look at the carbon footprint of all your food and whether the choices that we're making in order to eat things that are enjoyable to us are really can be justified in the world we're living in with limited resources, right? We just breathe the air that's around us because that's what's available. And we don't go try to find fancier air elsewhere. And for food, we do all sorts of things in order to give ourselves different pleasures or experiences. And I feel like the middle ground is water, right? We all in the US generally have, in most places, clean water out of our tap that we can drink. But people will also go buy bottled water from elsewhere. And there's a cost. And there's a real cost. Energy cost and environmental cost. And then the plastic bottles or even the glass bottles and, and, and recycling them. And, you know, I've often thought, man, if I could just eat the way my dog eats and have it just be like the same kibble every day. And I didn't think about it. And I just ate it when I was hungry. I mean, it gets back to my original premise. I, I think I'd be okay with that. I really would. But even though I do have nice memories of food related to, you know, people who are no longer with me and angry experiences of Mark stealing my pizza. I mean, yeah, there's strong emotions in my life tied to food, but I could also be fine being done with them. I think genuine food love often comes with a lot of flexibility or a lot of status-seeking showy 
food love comes with certain inflexibilities. When I think of some of Mark's discussions about this kind of like looking for like the rare animal, the rarest part, a lot of this feels more like machismo to me than like full food love. I mean, a lot of the times I think like there's a whole part of food culture that's like, it's about how hoppy can I make my IPA and how punishing an IPA can I take because I'm a bro, man. And some of food culture feels like that, especially the part that's devoted to eating like the weirdest part of the rarest animal or something like that. Where I found that in my life, and I do eat meat and I do worry about it, but I found the more I expanded my aesthetic horizons, the easier it was to flex and find like, I can now have a meal of garlicky beans and be like totally happy with that. And it's because like I learned to appreciate good beans and to make them well. And I think a certain degree of aesthetic flexibility instead of being like, what dinner is, is meat and potatoes. It's got to be meat on that thing, right? There's this curious thing. I'm not sure if this is general, but it seems like in a lot of cases when people get more into aesthetically an area, they're like tastes broaden. They learn to listen to more types of music or they learn to read more types of literature. And I found that the more I get into it, the more I could be like, yeah, my dinner tonight's going to be a sweet potato custard. And that's just it. And it's amazing because I found a good sweet potato and I learned to make it. And it's good. So I'm not sure that the excesses of food culture are the only way to be a food lover. I'm looking up sweet potato custard because I don't know what that is. And that sounds good. I'll send you a recipe. There's this great cookbook I found that was like lost recipes that the author found in farmhouses around America. This is an Amish recipe for sweet potato mixed with a little bit of egg and milk. And it's like a country souffle and it's pretty easy to make and it's totally delicious. Mm. I'll send you the recipe. I will not accept Thank the you. recipe. I will only accept a dish for a dish alive. <laughs> <laughs> the the re- recipe is the only way to communicate, you know, stuff it in a the box. inklings of the dish. And then <laughs> cook it for 15 more minutes. <laughs> See, I have to think that there is a food culture around right, using your own victory garden. And yeah. you make what you can locally. I mean, of yeah. course there is, because that's how restaurants advertise too, about locally sourced this and that. And those people can be just as pretentious yeah. and irritating yeah. But again, I don't think it's tied to the thing. It's tied to the person. And there you have the moral superiority porn. So you know Sturgeon's Law? Theodore Sturgeon was a sci-fi writer. And when someone said, why so much sci-fi crap? He said, well, 90% of everything is crap. One way to put it is pretentious people can pretentiousize anything. Elitist shitheads can make anything elitist. They can do it to any realm. Food isn't any different. So the fact that elitist shitheads have colonized food doesn't mean that food is bad. It means that elitist shitheads are bad and they do it to everything. And just so you know, our last nine episodes of the show were crap. So this is the one. This is going to be a good one. (laughs) And the irony is that it's elitist shitheads that use Sturgeon's Law to dismiss everything that they don't like as... Don't even get me on Sturgeon stuff. All right, all right. Well, thank you so much, T. This is awesome. This is a great way of uh, sort of introducing ourselves to this area, and perhaps we'll do something more specific in this later on. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure, y'all. Thank you, T. Thank you, listeners. Bye, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 